right. Why don't you go ahead and uh, take a seat if you're able to on this uh, Memorial Day weekend. Certainly some are already able to take advantage of the uh, day off tomorrow, but hopefully you have something uh, planned in remembrance, of course, of those who have uh, given their life for those freedoms that we enjoy, particularly this freedom that we have to gather for worship, right, without threat, to express ourselves in what we believe is the proper way to the world about God's love for the world. And so uh, as a nation, obviously, we can give thanks for those who gave the ultimate sacrifice uh, for us to be here today and to, and to guard those. So, uh, But nonetheless, uh, we are here and we're remembering one who gave uh, the greatest sacrifice, and that is Christ Jesus, our Lord and Savior, and talk a little bit about uh, his work in our life as his people. All right, well, uh, the Lord has a word for us today, uh, I hope and pray, uh, and so let's bow our heads in prayer and uh, turn to that. Heavenly Father, again, grateful um, that uh, we're able to gather to rejoice that uh, without threat or fear that we can express ourselves in joy and praise and thanksgiving and we can do it publicly we can do it privately in our own home we can do it in the quiet of our heart but we can do it and so we give you thanks we give you thanks in the secular sense of the the meaning for those um, who've made this available for us, who've made that ultimate sacrifice for us. But we give you thanks also in the greater sense for Jesus' sacrifice and love for us. We give you thanks for his ministry that continues even in our lives through your spirit and through the word before us. And so we just ask that as we've been praying, you speak to us, speak to us both individually but also corporately as a church. Help us to know your presence in our lives. And Lord, continue by your spirit to work in us so that we might respond um, to that work that you're doing. So we love you and we thank you for loving us and all God's people said, amen. All right. Well, as I said earlier, today uh, for us, it's Ascension Sunday. Uh, Ascension actually falls this coming Thursday, May 30th. And churches uh, that celebrate or recognize Ascension uh, choose to either recognize or celebrate it on the Sunday prior to Ascension, the Sunday after Ascension, or actually on the day of Ascension. Uh, so if you're feeling up for a worship service this Thursday night, you can go down to Zion um, because they will, uh, with all pomp and circumstance, uh, celebrate the Ascension on uh, Thursday evening. Uh, but we're going to recognize it today and celebrate it today in the life of the church and ask ourselves um, the leaving, the departure of Jesus. Why is it important? Why is it significant for you and me as the people of God uh, that uh, Jesus said, I'm out of here, right? Um, what does that mean for us? All right, so well, what I want to do, though, for you is set the context, all right, uh, for today's message. And let me share with you three different scriptures which give an account of the ascension as it took place before the first disciples. The first reading uh, comes to us from the Gospel of Luke at the end of his Gospel. It's chapter 24. This is verses 50 through 53. And it uh, simply says this, When he, that is Jesus, had led them, who is them, them are the disciples, out to the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and blessed them. 
While he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. Then they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they stayed continually at the temple, praising God. Think about those last two verses. Then they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they stayed continually at the temple, praising God. All right, that's the first text. Second text is from Mark chapter 16. This is also at the end of the Gospel of Mark and also records the ascension. And Mark, who was never one uh, for uh, verbosity, all right, uh, one who liked to just get to the point, you know, as fast as possible, land the plane, please, right, wrote this. After the Lord Jesus had spoken to them, he was taken up into heaven and he sat at the right hand of God. If you've grown up in the church, you've confessed the Apostles' Creed, right? He sits at the right hand of God. From thence he will come to judge the living and the dead. Then the, the disciples went out and preached everywhere. And the Lord worked with them and confirmed his word by the signs that accompanied it. All right, last text is from the book of Acts, uh, also written by Luke. Uh, it's actually the second half of the Gospel of Luke. Uh, but because it is a history of the early ter- church, uh, when the Bible was put together, it was actually separated uh, from the Gospel of Luke and moved um, just past the Gospel of John. All right. Acts chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. After Jesus said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid them from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? The same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven, he'll come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. All right, so that's the context for you uh, from uh, the Gospel of Luke, the Gospel of Mark, and the book of Acts. All right, but beyond the context, that is also the ending. That's also the ending, right? I said it comes at the end of Luke, it comes at the end of Mark, and then Luke's uh, record in the book of Acts begins at the ending, all right? Um, But that's the ending, so to speak. But it's this idea that the work of redemption has already been completed at the cross. Uh, Perhaps Jesus had said to himself, it's five o'clock, the whistle's blown, right? I can go home now. (laughs) But let me explain the significance of the ending, because obviously that's not the case. But explain the significance of the ending by actually going back to the beginning, all right? Not Genesis chapter 1, but Luke chapter 1, and I'll explain what I mean uh, by this. Okay, I know it's early, but can I make mention of Christmas, (laughs) right? We're just getting into summer, right? But hey, we're almost six months from Christmas, so believe it or not. Every Christmas, all right, the church reads the text from Luke 1 and Luke 2. It's the Christmas narrative, the Christmas story, right? And if you've grown up in the church, you may be familiar not only with the the Christmas story, right, with the nativity and the angels, uh, but the the part that comes just before it with the story of the birth of John the Baptist, right? Okay, that's not as well known because it's not, uh, I mean, it's not, I mean, we're all anticipating the birth of Jesus, right? John the Baptist always plays second to Jesus, which which is fine. But what happens in Luke chapter 1, is that Zechariah is in the temple in Jerusalem. And Zechariah is praying to the Lord, all right, that he, as old as he has become, that he and his wife, Elizabeth, will give birth to a child, that they'll have a child. Now, 
the angel of Gabriel visits Zechariah in the temple and answers Zechariah's prayer. But guess what Zechariah does? Well, I don't believe you. <laughs> Zechariah says to the angel Gabriel, no way. <laughs> and the angel Gabriel says to Zechariah, because of your unbelief, I will shut your mouth. And the angel causes Zechariah to no longer be able to speak. All right? So you have in that temple that day, in Jerusalem, in Luke chapter 1, unbelief and silence, right? Unbelief and silence by the people of God, or at least a representative of the people of God. So that's how the gospel opens. Think about that. The gospel opens with unbelief and with silence from the people of God. Yet we just saw, how does Luke close the gospel? Then they worshiped him and what? Read this with me. Returned to Jerusalem with great joy and they stayed continually at the temple praising God. The gospel opened with unbelief and silence and the gospel closes with belief and with praising and with joy, right, from the people of God. Joy and noise and belief and praise as they worship God. This is a stark contrast, isn't it, to the way we began. So why is this important? Well, first, think about it this way. Jesus' departure, that could have been a real deal breaker, right? (laughs) I mean, a downer, a discouragement, a a distressing moment that could have left the, the disciples speechless, mute, right? In unbelief. To see Christ leave them and not even take them with him could have been a deflating uh, experience to all that they had just been through over the last 40 days, let alone the last three years with him. It's like, you know, you're trying to catch a bus, right? And you get to the bus stop, but you're 30 seconds late and the bus is already down the street and you're running down the street. Wait, 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 don't leave me, you know. I'm sure your parents told you when they left you behind that one time it was just an accident, right? (laughs) But you understand if you get left behind, right? How they might feel about the situation. It also kind of made me think, you know, in terms of it being Memorial Day weekend and and more of a a, a somber holiday for us as a nation as we recognize those who uh, gave their life uh, in service to our nation. you know, perhaps Jesus' departure was more akin to like a, a company commander abandoning his men in the, in the heat of battle, right? There's nothing to inspire them or, or spur them in on. It's just the opposite. Um, you know, maybe even a dereliction of duty uh, by the commander. Uh, but those left behind, they're, they're going to throw up the white flag. They're going uh, to, uh, despite what appeared to them to be a victory, uh, believe that, that all has been lost. But not so here. Jesus' ascension, his departure, as you have seen from the text, does not bring about despondency, but instead it brings out inspiration and it brings out response from the people of God. Let's go to the Mark text, again, from the gospel. After the Lord Jesus had spoken to them, he was taken up into heaven and he sat at the right hand of God. And then what? Let's read verse 20 and following together. Then the disciples went out and preached everywhere, and the Lord worked with them and confirmed his word by the signs that accompanied it. 
see, without Jesus leaving, the church doesn't move. The church doesn't go. The church doesn't begin its mission that it, it will be commissioned with. So think of Jesus' ascension less in the human sense as a departure or even a, a dereliction of duty, but more as a transition. Jesus had to go to the Father to take his proper place. But in so doing, it now opens the way, all right, it now opens the way for a number of blessings in the life of the disciples and also in our lives as well as the people of God. That's why Luke can close his gospel with praise. That's why Luke can close his gospel with noise. That's why Luke can close his gospel on a high note, right? There is no silence or unbelief where the people of God are concerned. There's no dereliction of duty where their leader is concerned. Jesus has fulfilled all things and has become all things to them and to us. What more reason could the people of God need than to give praise to God for what he's given them? So if Jesus' departure sets the stage for more, what should they and what can we expect, right? A lot, I think, but in terms of our limited time this morning, let me just reflect on one or two things for us today. Let me share with you uh, Hebrews chapter 7, all right, in terms of perhaps what is available to you and to me as the people of God, perhaps the expectations that we can have of Jesus now that he sits at the right hand of the Father, right? But the author of Hebrews says this, because Jesus lives forever, right? That's Easter Sunday. He has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him, right? That's us. Because he always lives to what? Intercede for them, for us. Jesus, the right hand of God, lives to intercede for you. You have to think about that. If you move too quickly over that text, that profound meaning within that text is lost. That Christ himself, resurrected from the dead, ascended to the heaven, sits at the right hand of the Father for you. Such a high priest truly meets our need. What's your need or perceived need? Right? What are the needs of those whom you love? What are the needs of your community? What are the needs of your workplace? What are the needs of the schools in your community? Such a high priest truly meets our need, one who is holy and blameless and pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike any other high priest, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. So the first need he meets is our need for forgiveness, our need for salvation, our need uh, to know that we are loved by God and welcomed by God into his presence. But then there are those subsequent needs in life, right? But this passage basically sums up Jesus' ministry on earth, but also his ministry in heaven that continues to this day for you. What he has done is doing and will do. But let's just for, again, for today, let's just look at it from the position of the heavenly realms, all right, we have some idea of the life and ministry of Jesus over those three years from the Gospels, but let's, let's look at it from the idea of, of, of from the heavenly realms. First, 
Consider that the text tells us that even though he is not with us, he is for us. That he is for us. That he is not an adversary, right? That he is for you and me. And one of the examples of the way in which he is for us in the heavenly realms is that he intercedes for us. That means before the Father, he not only represents us, but he is offering himself for us. He is our advocate, right? Those of you who um, have had some experience with caring for your aging parents, you know that you are an advocate for them before the legal system, before the, the medical system, that you stand in their stead, right? Because you've, given that, you've been given that authority. That's the way it is for Jesus, for you and me, he is our advocate before the Father. You know, 1 John, uh, 1 or 1 John 2, verse 1, talks about Christ's advocacy. So you could, if you want to go see a little bit more about what that means, you can look up 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. But it's this idea, publicly speaking, before the world, he calls us his own, and in calling us his own, he lays claim on us. And in being his, he becomes for us our strength. Our strength before those needs that we have, our strength in the time of testing, our strength in the time of temptation. This is Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. In your prayer life, do you feel like you approach the throne of grace in confidence? Do you feel like you approach the throne of grace in boldness? Not based upon your own strength, not based upon your own past or how good you think you are or how bad you think you are. Uh, do you approach the throne of grace based on the person and work of Jesus Christ? Because that's the invitation to you and to me. That's the permission that we have as the people of God because of what Christ has done for us. So are you in a time of testing? Are you in a time of need? Are you in a time of temptation? Where are you going to go to address that? You can go home or you can go down the hall and you can go into the bathroom and you can look in the mirror. That's the first place you can go, right? Me, myself, and I. Are you 100% reliable even to yourself? <laughs> I ask that facetiously because I know I'm not, right? Nonetheless, the, the encouragement, if you will, instruction application for us is to look to heaven to look to christ seated at the right hand of god who is interceding for you and for me he's our advocate well what else first john 1 6 through 10 tells us he is our restoration that has some allusions to the resurrection and his ability to restore our lives where there has been brokenness to bind it up where there's woundedness to bring healing where there's a deficiency to become our sufficiency, where there's emptiness to, to be our fullness. Uh, John chapter 14 tells us he prepares a place for us, right? There is this thread post the ascension, all right, like we're talking about today, this thread in Scripture through the book of Acts and then through the epistles. We see it in uh, Paul's letters, uh, but also in Hebrews. That as we connect with Christ through the word, as we connect with Christ through prayer, as we connect through Christ through worship, he continues to minister to you and to me as the people of God by the power of his spirit. And 
as he continues to, to minister to us as the people of God, he is making us more like himself. And so if you want to talk about blessings as the people of God, this is a number one, right? That for you and me, he wants to make us more like him, right? More like, not to be him because he already fulfills all that, but to make us more like him. Have you ever thought about having a makeover, right? I live in a house with four women, right? <laughs> There's a lot of glitter. <laughs> I can't get away from the glitter. So I've just learned to accept glitter as being glamorous, right? And even makes someone like me look even better. <laughs> but let me ask you this. Where would you like Christ to work in your life? What is it about you, perhaps, and I'll just ask it this way, that you don't like? What don't you like about yourself, right? We all have things that we wish we could change or improve, right? Is it perhaps in your attitude towards others? Is it perhaps to give you a more generous spirit because you feel like, I have a hard time sharing with others? Uh, would you like to complain less, right, about, about life? <laughs> or perhaps just have more compassion towards those who are different from you? Those and others, they're important challenges that's for us to consider as God desires to do a good work in us and through us. Or how about this? Interestingly enough, in Ephesians 4, Paul mentions the ascension. He's also quoting Psalm 68, which talks about the ascension. Jesus, as he describes him in Ephesians chapter 4, he's described as the glorified head of the church. All right, the glorified head of the church, not the pastor, not the pope, right? But Jesus himself, the glorified head of the church. But the church, think about that. That's also part of the equation. He's not just the glorified head of a of a of like a bodiless body, right? That doesn't even make sense, but you know what I'm saying. If you're a glorified head of something, there's got to be the head's got to be on something, right? Well, in this particular case, it's the church. That's the disciples. That's you and me. That's Christians around the world and across the ages. That's those of us, unlike Zechariah, dare I say. Those of us that are no longer unbelieving and mute, but those of us who are gathering and praising and thanking God and worshiping, singing his praises not only because of the resurrection, uh, but also because he's adding to the church every day by the very power of his spirit, that the church is being built up through the use of its gifts, each one of us partaking of it in, in, uh, in a way which strengthens and encourages the whole, which leads to this verse. This is Hebrews 10. Now may the God of peace equip you, right, with every good work for doing his will. This is one of those results of his departure. And may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. So, again, Luke opens his gospel with a scene in the temple, and he closes his gospel in the same way in the city of Jerusalem. But what a contrast, right? What a contrast between the unbelieving, silent priest, Zechariah, and then that trusting group of joyful saints praising and worshiping him. His book begins by explaining how Jesus went to Jerusalem to accomplish the work of redemption, and it ends in re uh, Jerusalem with redemption done. But thankfully, it doesn't actually stay there. 
Because as I said earlier, Jesus' departure is not an ending, it's just a transition. Because having picked up on that transition and having been strengthened in belief, the church is now empowered to go out into the world and to do what we're doing here today. Think about it this way, if you will. The gospel is the go now that Jesus has gone. (laughs) I made that up. (laughs) I need David here today to, yeah. Anyway, the gospel is the go now that Jesus has gone. And so the ascension becomes for us not a departure and not a wait, 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 don't forget me, but instead becomes for us a good thing. Meaning for you and me that yes, he has left us behind, but he has not left us behind without a purpose. He has not left us behind without a plan for that purpose. And he has not left us behind without a powerful reminder that he is present with us today. In Jesus' name, amen.